Last week I shared four phrases that we feel like the Holy Spirit is highlighting for us, things from his word that we are pressing into as a church to be intentional with our growth, um, specific in our application, trying to find ways that we can put these things into practice so that as a people we grow. And those four things, the first one is growing as a dependent people. That we're starting to live lives where we can hear and trust and obey the Holy Spirit in a radical way. We want to live and be people that need the Holy Spirit in order to do the things uh, that we are stepping out to do. Otherwise, we will fail. We want to grow as a devoted people, learning how to fall deeply in love with God and to express that love by actually limiting other things that our hearts are devoted to and getting rid of those other things that we might even worship by putting our full attention and affection on God where it belongs. We want to grow as a stirring people. And ultimately what that means is being people who understand our place as ones that would stir each other up to love and good works and then receive that same stirring from those that we're in community with. And we want to grow in being a sent people, understanding the call of God on our lives to be here on purpose, on mission, carrying the name of Jesus. So those are the things that in this season we feel like God's asking us to step into. And last week I did a brief overview and explanation of those four phrases. And this week we're going to be looking at the enemies of those areas of growth in our life. What are the things that are going to get in the way of us growing in these ways that we believe God's calling us into? So there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that's been pretty uh, formational for, I imagine, many of you. If you've been around the church, it's one of those familiar ones that you just kind of hear over and over, or maybe you've memorized at some point, but it's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we'll kind of refer to this a few different times throughout the course of our day today. It says this, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I love this passage because it is both gospel-centered and it gives you something to do. It's gospel-centered in that it says this whole project is done in the context of us looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And those two words are very important. Jesus is the author of our faith. He saves us. You don't save yourself you didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. You were the lost sheep. He came after you. He rescued you. He redeemed you. He restored you. And it can be humbling to think that way. But that's the storyline of the gospel, is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Jesus Christ. He saved us. And so there's this element of how we approach running understanding that Jesus is the author of our faith and that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. And what that means is that Jesus is at work in us. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Jesus is intentional about growing and developing you. But we've said this, I don't know, a dozen times in the last year. He doesn't do it against your will. You are a participant in your sanctification. You're invited to join with what God is going to do in shaping you to become more like Jesus. He doesn't do it to you. He does it with you. 
And that's a very important thing to understand because this call is on us. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off. It's not, dear God, please get rid of this sin. It's let us cast off the sin and the things which cling so closely and let's run, run with endurance the race that has marked out for us or set before us. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a couple of key things when it comes to these four areas that we see God growing us in. What are the enemies? And we're going to look in the two categories of sin and at least the NIV says things which cling so closely. Uh, the ESV that I use more now in my life, I memorized this when I was in high school, uh, it says it this way. It says every weight, every weight and the idea is, how do we reduce the drag on our lives to be able to run with perseverance the race marked out for us? And the drag on our lives, this author is looking at sin and weight. And both of those categories are important for us to identify. So we're going to start with sin in each of these four areas. So the enemy of growing as a dependent people, the sin, the core sin that gets in the way of us being a dependent people is pride. Pride will get in the way of us being a dependent people. And when you think about our, what it means to be dependent, we talked last week three things about uh, hearing and discerning the voice of the Spirit, uh, learning to live in such a way that without the Holy Spirit will fail. And the third thing we talked about was a radical and immediate obedience to God's leading in our life. And to do those things, there's a, a fundamental thing that needs to happen, and it's to understand that he has more control over you and your day than you do. See, pride likes to hold on and say, I've got this. I've got a better day in mind than God has for me. Pride actually resists when God tries to lead us because we have things in mind. We have plans that we've made. We have directions that we're going. And so we choose to resist God because we think we can do it better. And so we in our pride, resist the leading of the Holy Spirit, and our dependence is diminishing. Now, here's the thing that for us, it may not be the same kind of pride for each of us all the time. If you've dealt with pride, which I have in my own life, uh, it manifests itself in hundreds of ways. And you could end up playing whack-a-mole your entire life just trying to figure out pride finds a new way to manifest, and you are trying to, again, uproot and kill that sin of pride as it continues to pop up. And what I want to encourage you with is our heart is to grow in our dependence on the Spirit of God. And if we're going to do that, we do need to be intentional, even over the course of a long life of continually battling pride and being intentional about it. I'm going to take you to a story in 2 Chronicles. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to 2 Chronicles 26, which I'm sure you were in in your quiet times this morning. Um, I, don't, I don't know why that's a funny joke. People read Chronicles all the time. I just felt like maybe it's, it's not Ephesians, you know? Everybody reads Ephesians. Okay. Second uh, Chronicles 26 is a story about a king named Uzziah. And Uzziah was a, uh, a 16-year-old king, and he was a, a good king when he started. It was actually a pretty amazing thing, and uh, did a lot for the nation of Israel. And you may have heard of Uzziah because in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God, that whole thing starts by saying, in the year King Uzziah died, uh, and, it, and then you see Isaiah go up. That's what Uzziah is mostly famous for. But this story is a pretty important one when it comes to uh, the enemy of pride, the sin of pride that can take us away from being dependent on God. So 
Second Chronicles 26, starting in verse 4, talking about Uzziah, it says, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So this is the start of King Uzziah's reign as a 16-year-old king, was a young man that was after God and growing in his hunger for God. And then uh, verse 15, it says this at the end of verse 15, and his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. And then verse 16, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. See, the story of Uzziah is about a young man that understood that he cannot do the thing that he needs to do, rule the nation of Israel apart from God's presence in his life. He got that. He actually started to thrive in that. And his dependence on the Lord was there, and he was growing in his hunger for God. And as he grew strong, and this is what happens with so many of us, as we actually find a lane of success in this life, we can very quickly go from people that are dependent on the Holy Spirit to people that rely on our own strength. And as pride takes over, it leads to destruction. I just want to encourage you with this, this fundamental sin of pride. Again, it's a massive one, and I want to encourage you not to get overwhelmed by, okay, so I'll never be a dependent person if I have pride. Ultimately, what I want to encourage you with is we need to continually be paying attention to the sin from Hebrews 12 that keeps us from running the race. And if we want to grow as a dependent people, we have to pay attention to pride that we think we can do a better job running our lives than God. See, what happens is if we grow as dependent people, there are times where God asks us things that are very inconvenient. I need you to go to this place. It's like, well, I have a different plan for today, Lord. I need you to talk to this person. That's weird. I don't want to say anything to them, God. I need you to go and pray for this person. Ah, they don't want to be prayed for right now, Lord. And we start to battle with God as he's doing the work of leading us, and something happens when we battle with God and battle with God and walk in our pride and walk in our pride. He actually doesn't just keep shouting at us. He kind of moves on to the next person. Now, he'll always be there talking. But as you continually disobey, God looks for people that are ready and willing to say yes to him. And he gives them opportunities and paves the way for them to walk in his spirit. That's not to discourage you and say God's never going to use you. There's this always present invitation for you to humble yourself. Think of the two passages, 1 Peter uh, 5 and James 4, where it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when you're walking in pride, God is standing in opposition to you. You're not going to get traction. You're not going to feel like things are moving and going in a relationship with God. But when you are humble, God gives grace to the humble. Just imagine that sense of flow and speed and motion. God empowers the humble to carry out his work. Now, I will say this one last thing. When we realize our dependence... The thing we talked about last week is living a life that if you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you would fail. 
The reality is all of our assignments, if we understand our assignments here on earth, our calling, all of our callings are impossible apart from the power of God at work in us. You need to be dependent on the Spirit of God to do the things that God is asking you to do. There's not one of us here that can do it on our own. And ultimately, coming to that realization is what allows us to then be dependent on God and to walk in that, moving forward and seeing him grow in his using of us. All right, so that's uh, dependence. Now let's go into the enemy of devotion. Uh, The fundamental sin that we deal with when it comes to devotion, and I spent a little bit of time dabbling in this last week, and I'll say it again, is the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. Now, we tend to think of idols uh, as physical idols, and maybe you've moved past that, but the reality is we kind of have this picture in our mind that an idol is something that we worship that's not God, and for most of us, we can dispose of that and say, okay, generally speaking, I don't worship idols, but there's a different aspect to idolatry that we need to pay attention to. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes, uh, and this is New Testament, this is 50, 60, 70 years of the church up and running, Jesus, resurrection, Holy Spirit, scriptures being written, and John writes to the church and says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. There are things that are going to pop up that are going to take your attention and affection. Tim Keller writes a book called Counterfeit Gods uh, years ago, and he says this, He says, yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places in the world, internal idol worship within the heart is universal. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says about elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. John Calvin writes this, the human heart is an idol factory. Few different preachers have put it this way, that when you take a good thing and make it into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. And what happens is we start to develop a life where we're all about God. But then things start to come into our life and that all about God starts to become divided. We start to put our attention on different things in different places. And as our hearts become divided, we enter into this sin of idolatry where we have allowed our heart to create, or as Tim Keller put it, to deify even a good thing. Last week, we talked about uh, the idea of buying a house as an example. And so many of us have gone through this where we're trying to figure out how do you afford life in California. And so what, what ends up happening is you start to have this picture of a house and a desire for it and to say, okay, if I could just buy a house, then I could put down roots. I could be here. I could have the life that I want to live. And if I want to buy a house, I need money. Money is how I'm going to buy a house. And if I'm going to get money and money is going to provide this thing for me that I need, then money starts to take on a new place in our affections. We start to cultivate an affection, a desire for, a longing for money. It may not be that from 10 years old you've been worshiping money and had an idol in your heart about money, 
But over the course of time, the human heart becoming an idol factory, this is the way our flesh works. We create and produce these idols, and we take a good thing, something that God gave us, like money and an economy and the ability to trade and do life in this world. We take something like that, and we make it into a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. That's a, a difficult thing for us to work through when we have these idols in our heart. They start to take our affection away from God. We talked about finding a spouse or, uh, or having a kid. It's one of those areas that so many of us have gone through, this longing to have our family take a different shape. I'd like to be married. I'd like to have a kid. Things aren't working out that way, and we can cultivate in our minds, if I just had that, fill in the blank, my life would make sense, my heart would be united to God's, and I would be thriving in all the things that I'm supposed to do. And what happens is we've just deified a future spouse or a future child in a very inappropriate way. We've taken a good thing, a thing that God gives us, and we've made it into a God thing, something that we long for and maybe even worship, and it's become an idol. What happens when we have these idols is divided affection. A guy named Tony Reinke writes for Desiring God, and he says this, He says, don't think that you can mix God with your worship of idols. If you want one-third of God and two-thirds of the idols, the other idols, you get none of God. Syncretism is what that's called, is vain thinking about God. You've missed the point of God if you say, okay, I want God and this other thing. And we talked last week, and I won't re-preach the message from last week. You can go back and get it. How do we have devotion to God, but then also have desire for things of this world, to thrive in the jobs that we have or to uh, grow our family or buy a house. Like, how how do those things fit within that? And I will encourage you to go back and listen to uh, those things from last week because there is a way for us to move forward in this world where our hearts are fully devoted to God and those things, they take their proper place in our understanding. But it is a constant battle. Idols... You may not be dealing with the same idols today that you'll be dealing with in 10 years, but they are this ever-present threat that Satan loves to put things in our lives that we become worshipers of those things. Uh, So back to Tim Keller. Tim Keller identifies four tests of your heart to discern idols in your life. I just thought these were helpful to look at. Uh, Four things. The first one is where do you go with your solitude? So where do your thoughts effortlessly go when you're alone and quiet? That's one test of your affections. Do you spend time in worship and prayer? Do you think about the things of God? Do you dwell on him? Or does your mind immediately go to something else that you have this affection for or this worship of? And again, you may not use that language, but that's one test. Not the only one, but one test. Number two, where does your money go? Your money flows effortlessly towards your heart's greatest love. Number three, what is your functional God? So here's the functional God language. If you pray for something or you desire something, and you don't get it, and you get angry or bitter or resentful, that's an indication that that thing was a functional God. Okay? So that's back to the the house situation. You could long for a house, have desire for a house, put an offer on a house, don't get it, put an offer on a house, don't get it, put an offer on a house, don't get it. And what starts to happen is resentment and anger build up. God, I thought you had this story for me. I thought you were going to give this thing to me. Well, what you're starting to understand is that If God is the one that you're worshiping and he says, that's not what I have for you, God continues to be the one that you're worshiping, that has your affection. 
if the thing is what you're worshiping and God says, no, you can't have that, and you get angry at God and resentful towards God, that's an indication that that thing has become an idol. Okay, the fourth one is where do you, and this is a, a tough one, but where do your most uncomfortable emotions come from? I realize that there's a depth to that statement that we can't explore in a public setting like this. But to mine your most uncomfortable emotions, the things that, that dwell up in you, that rise up in you, and to try and trace those down to what is the idol that produced that reaction, that emotion, that response to my spouse, to my friends, to an adverse situation at work, uh, to, to my neighbors, to people that I don't have a particular love for, and those start to rise up, well, we can start to identify what those idols might be based on where those emotions are coming from. So those are just four things to look at and just honestly, actually evaluate yourself. Take a look at your own heart because these things, they're very subtle. The things that become gods in our life happen, it happens very quickly. Okay. Uh, let's keep going and let's go into enemies of being a stirring people. The enemy of being a stirring people, the sin that takes us away from that is disobedience. Now, I realize that that is, you're like, okay, that's cheap because that's the enemy of all of these. If we're disobeying God, then it's the enemy of all the things that you're talking about. But here's the thing about being a stirring people. Why don't we stir one another up to love and good works? Why don't we challenge each other? Why aren't we iron sharpening iron? Fundamentally, when God says go and do this thing and you don't go and do that thing, that's disobedience. And God has called on us and created a system where the body, the people of the church are members one of another. We're united to each other because we have the same Christ, Ephesians 4, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all and through all and in all. There's this unifying reality. And in that ecosystem that we've been brought into, we're challenged to stir one another up to love and good works, to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another as God has forgiven you, to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. These one another's, I believe there are 39 of them in the New Testament, are commands given to the church to be in each other's lives, making each other more like Jesus. And that goes both ways. That goes to being the ones that would speak a difficult truth and help shape somebody to be more like Jesus and also to receive a difficult truth and to be shaped to be more like Jesus. And both can be disobedient. You might be the person that's constantly giving it, but when somebody calls on you to grow to be like Jesus, you're like, who are you? Who are you to say a word to me? I've seen your life. I've seen God at work in you, and it's no good. I mean, I say that kind of jokingly, but for a lot of us, we are unwilling to receive from other people. And a lot of us are unwilling to do anything to upset the world around us. Like, they're fine. I don't have anything really to say. The Holy Spirit can convict them. They'll figure it out. Who am I to say anything to them? I've seen my relationship with God, and it's no good. And we start to disqualify ourselves and ultimately disobey God. So if God says to you, hey, I have you in this place 
to stir people up to love and good works. Think about the things that that phrase might mean, by the way. I want you to be in somebody else's life, and I want you to be the person that helps them be better at loving others, loving God, and doing good things in this world that they are created in Christ Jesus to do, according to Ephesians 2.10. You're there to help them figure that out. Go, do it. And at some point, we have to decide, are we going to be obedient, even if it's uncomfortable? So disobedience is that thing. It's that thing that keeps us. Now, with all of these, and I'll kind of go through and talk about them, but with all of these, the answer to sins in our life is repentance and rooting out sin. So if you've been disobedient, if you've been the person that just backs off and says, yeah, there's nothing really for me to say in this situation, or the person that gets defensive anytime somebody tries to say something to us, there's an opportunity for you to repent and say, Jesus, I have closed off my life to your access. I am currently unwilling for you to use me to stir up the body to love and good works or to be stirred up and I need to repent and choose a different path. Lord, the next time somebody challenges me, would you give me a different heart to receive that? Or the next time I have an opportunity to speak truth and love into somebody's life, would you give me courage to say that? Or you missed a window, somebody said something to you and you reacted really poorly and you go back to that person later and say, I was sinfully disobedient. You were trying to make me more like Jesus, and I rejected you. I actually want to hear what you have to say, if you'd be willing to say it. Can you imagine the growth that could come from something like that when we repent of being disobedient and go back into those places and say, yes, Lord, whatever you have for me. Okay, the fourth one is being a sent people. And the sin that keeps us from being a sent people is disbelief. Disbelief. This is why, like last week, I spent a lot of time talking about what do we think we're here for? What is it that God has put on our lives? We talked uh, back in Romans 15 about calling, assignment, and ambition. And there's this general sense, and we operate under it, and we have to come to a conclusion. What do we believe? So Jesus said some pretty key things after he was crucified and raised from the dead that we have to wrestle with. He said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And here's a theological wrestle that everybody needs to go through. Was Jesus talking to the people in the room with him at that moment? Or was he talking to all Christians for all time? That's something that you have to decide. And there's not really an in-between. There's not a good in-between zone. You could be like, well, he was just talking to the, like, the New Testament, the 100 years or the 78 years of the New Testament that were represented. That's who Jesus was talking to. And then after the New Testament was done, then everybody else lives in a different era where we just kind of are chill until Jesus comes again. That would be, a, I, there's no good way to land at that. I just said that. Don't try that. That's not good. So it's either he was talking to the people in the room or he's talking to all Christians for all time. Now we are firmly in the camp. That at John 20, 21, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Acts 1, 8, in each of these places, Jesus was talking not only to the people in the immediate vicinity, but to every subsequent generation of followers of Jesus until he comes again. We're firmly in that camp. We don't have a good framework for how somebody could come to a different conclusion. So there's a belief element to each and every one of us as followers of Jesus that has to come to this understanding of why am I here? Jesus, why am I here? 
Why have I not been ended yet? Hit by a bus, struck by lightning, drowned on a cruise ship. Why am I still here? You have me here for a purpose, and he has a directive for you, and it is that you're sent. You're sent. There's an incredible beauty to that. I got to pray with a man in in, in our church as he was nearing the end of his physical life, and he said this. He said, if God has another assignment for me, he's going to heal me. But if this is the end of my assignment, he's going to take me home. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing that teaches you more than in that moment when somebody is facing the end of their physical life, understanding, I have lived my assignment. And if God has more for me, guess what he can do? He can wipe this cancer out, and I'm his. And if he wraps up my physical life, guess what? I am home with the Lord. And that's how Paul can say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the purpose, the mission, the reason. That's how we would live with that kind of zeal and fervor and readiness and hunger is belief. And so when we don't live as sent people here on purpose, we are disbelieving what Jesus has said about your purpose for being here if you're a follower of Jesus. Again, need some repentance. If you have prevented yourself from living as a missionary, an evangelist, a speaker of the gospel, a counselor to the lost, uh, a peacemaker, a bridge builder, somebody that actually helps people find their way back to God, if you have self-ejected from that as a way of life, or even missed opportunities for that because of that disbelief. It's a great moment to repent and say, Lord, I, I took myself out of the very game that you kept me here to be in. So those sins, pride, idolatry, disobedience, and disbelief, they're big, big sins. But they're important for us to wrestle with. There's an author named Jerry Bridges, and uh, he wrote a book a bunch of years ago called Respectable Sins. I love the title of that book because as Christians, we tend to generally live in the okay space of some of these respectable sins. And then there's the really egregious sins that are not allowed in our world, but these clean and tidy and nice sins, these ones are fine for us to live with, and they're not. Pride, idolatry, disobedience, disbelief. They're a sin like any other, and they need to be uprooted if we want to grow. If we want to find traction in this, they need to grow. They need to be sent out, cast off. Now, I just want to share a couple of passages that I think are really important before I move on into the things that cling so closely. Let me find my passages that I want to share. They're really good. Okay. Colossians 3.5 says this. Put to death what is earthly in you. Hebrews 12.1, we already talked about this one. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Three very important passages that talk about you getting rid of these sins that are bogging you down and keeping you from growing in Jesus. And each one of them does not end with the simple act of getting rid of but then they follow up with Colossians 3 says, put to death what is earthly in you and put on Christ. 
Put on Christ. Ephesians 4 says, put off your old self, but put on the new self that is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, just talking about this, like a a new set of clothes. You put them on. Hebrews 12 says, let us cast off the sin and the things which easily entangle and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But you do it how? Looking to Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. So in that, we understand that there is a project of getting rid of sin and there's a project of putting on Christ. And that's going to be next week what we talk about. Now let's talk about the things which cling so closely. Uh, the, The word that made sense to me in this was to talk about clutter. The things which cling so closely, the ESV says the weights. The idea is we have stuff in our life that's not necessarily sin, but it falls in a different category, and it makes it very difficult for us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There's a challenge that all of us are facing, even a problem, and it's that we pack every single minute of our days with motion, information, communication, and entertainment. The practices of being still, of having a quiet time, of having a devotional, of being in solitude, those are shrinking. Even in our Christian culture, our anthem culture, those things can be diminishing. And at the same time, the noise level is increasing exponentially. The clutter that's available to us to fill our physical spaces our mental spaces, our emotional spaces, and our spiritual spaces is off the charts. And I just want to say this before we dig deeper into it. Uh, This is Isaiah prophesying about Jesus. So this is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 19. It says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. When you think about this text, you need to understand something. Jesus is not going to compete with the noise of this world for you to hear his voice. He will speak and you can hear him, but he's not going to try and shout louder than the world so that you hear him. That's not how he operates. So when we think about hearing his voice, we have a participation in this, and that's to cast off the things which cling so closely to our lives so that we can actually hear him and obey him. So first we're going to start, start with the physical spaces. So physical clutter are the things of this world. The things of this world. Last week we talked about the house or a kid or a spouse. Like the, the things of this world. Those are big things. But there are also little things that can take our attention. Just think of, you know, every break you get at work and you're researching uh, the the iPhone 15 and if it's going to have USB-C and just reading article after article after article trying to find out, is that true? (laughs) What a game changer. And it just starts to, those things just fill our time and our energy. We might spend time shopping online or scrolling through Zillow for the 87th hour. Think about how we're going to build or rebuild our dream bike toy with the idea of getting a dog. That's when your whole life just goes to hell. (laughs) There are no spiritual disciplines in dog ownership in the same world. It just doesn't exist. But these things, they take our time 
and our energy and we let a dog or a car or a computer or a phone or a hobby or a project consume whatever disposable time we have. And that's an interesting phrase, disposable time. I've noticed this as you, uh, as you kind of grow up and get older and, and your life starts to fill out. You know, when you're young, there's this unbelievable amount of disposable time. And then things start to happen in your life where responsibilities take over some of those hours that at one point were disposable and they start to fill those spaces. So maybe it's college or you get married or you have kids. You've all played the game of life and you just keep adding stuff to your car and adding things to your, you know, your, your little area. And it just starts to pack out and the responsibilities mount and the idea of disposable time starts to go away. Well, something also kind of happens and that's we get really caught up in a lot of stuff that with whatever little time we have takes all of the rest of it. That's the thing with the things of this world. You pick up a hobby, and I'm, I'm not against hobbies. Like, I, honestly, I'm not against hobbies. I have a couple hobbies. I enjoy them. But what happens is those things so quickly consume not only our disposable time, but 10x beyond whatever disposable time we have so that if any minutes come up, they're automatically diverted to that thing. Sometimes minutes that should be spent on other things, like our job or our family, our kids, or our relationship with the Lord, we choose instead of giving those non-disposable minutes to the things that they're supposed to go to, we give those minutes instead to these things that just kind of have our attention at the moment, and we've let the physical spaces of our lives get completely filled up. How does a person obey God? Hear his voice and walk closely with him if our entire physical world is consumed by the things that are available to us. They're not bad or evil or sinful things. You're not a sinner if you like to mountain bike. You're not a sinner if you join a gym. But all of these things that we do we absolutely have a responsibility to ensure that they don't clutter up our life in a way that keeps us from running after Jesus. So they need to be in their proper place. That's the physical space. We'll keep going because we could talk about this for quite a while, but let's talk about mental clutter. Mental clutter has to do with the information overload that all of us live with at any given moment. Uh, this is from Brett McCracken who wrote The Wisdom Pyramid. And you might have a little panic attack after I read this, but uh, try not to. The exponential explosion of information in the information age is mind-boggling. Consider a sampling of the numbers. In 2019, a single minute on the internet saw the transmission of 188 million emails, 18.1 million texts, and 4.5 million videos viewed on YouTube. By 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than there are stars in the observable universe. Some estimates suggest that by 2025, 463 exabytes of data will be created each day online, the equivalent of 212,765,957 DVDs, that's when this book was written, per day. What even is an exabyte? Well, consider this. This is the one that blew me away. Five exabytes is equivalent to all the words ever spoken by humans since the dawn of time. In 2025, that amount of data will be created every 15 minutes. Here's the craziest thing, in all our, it's in all our pockets. Just a few clicks away, our phones are now encyclopedias, libraries, universities, but as convenient as it is to have such access, 
answers to any question we might have, results for any painting or video we want to see, umpteen resources for whatever we might want to research, the glut of information online is also overwhelming. And it's not making us wise. Just as too much food makes a body sick, too much information makes the soul sick. Information gluttony is a real problem in the age of Google. Its symptoms are widespread and concerning. I realize right away you're thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do? Just shut it off? Just stop listening to all of the things that are out there, all the things that are available to be known. And here is the thing that you have to wrestle with. Is that as human beings, we're not built for that much information. We're not built to hold all the information that is knowable. If you take a minute and think about what we're building with the internet, it feels a lot like the Tower of Babel in Genesis, where we are creating ways to be like God, to have all of the information in all of the world at our fingertips all of the time. And you have to come to the conclusion, because it's true, that you are not God. Your ways are higher than my ways, and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And if we allow ourselves to continually fill our minds with endless streams of information, I'll, I'll tell you about a bad day for me, a bad, mor- a bad first 15 minutes of my morning, just so that you understand what we're talking about. So this is a, a bad morning for me. I have some good mornings and I have some bad mornings. But in the first 15 minutes of my day, I could theoretically open my weather app, my stocks app, Surfline, ESPN, seven or eight different school apps trying to figure out how to order hot lunch, Uh, Slack, (laughs) podcasts, and a news app. In like 15 to 20 minutes, my brain is in all of those spaces and my whole world is off and running in different directions. And that's, that's a pretty disciplined morning. I've gotten a lot better at a lot of those things, but the reality is we just fill our minds with so much stuff. And it's, it's mental clutter that we have to choose what we give access to our brains, and what we don't. Nobody's going to be there for you saying, no, 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 that's too much. That's too much. Hey, 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 ease up. Nobody's going to be there saying, all right, you've got time for one podcast today, but don't try and fit seven in. We don't have the luxury of people being around us, helping us navigate this information flood, at some point, we have to make individual, personal, willpower choices to say it's clutter, and I need to discipline myself to not allow it to fill my mind and fill my life. And now let's talk about emotional clutter. So there's the mental information, and I'm going to pick on one area of, of social media to, that deals with our emotions. There are lots of things that, uh, that affect our emotions. But over the last 20 years, social media has evolved from MySpace, that was the best one, uh, to Facebook, to Instagram, to Snapchat, YouTube, TikTok, Be Real, and they just keep getting invented. There's more that keep coming. And sociologists have observed that the social emotional capacity of humanity is dwindling rapidly. In January of this year, the Surgeon General issued a warning. So think the label on cigarettes that tells you that they can kill you. That same Surgeon General guy put a label on social media and wrote a massive paper outlining 
we have a, a ton of research that we still need to do, but our initial findings are revealing this data, and I want to just read a couple of things from this. Surgeon General says, extreme, inappropriate, and harmful content continues to be easily and widely accessible by children and ad adolescents. In certain cases, childhood deaths have been linked to suicide and self-harm related content and risk-taking challenges on social media platforms. Social media may perpetuate body dissatisfaction, disordered eating behaviors, social comparison, and low self-esteem, especially among adolescent girls. Two-thirds of adolescents are exposed to hate-based content on social media, and a consistent relationship was found between cyberbullying and depression among children and adolescents. See, it's not just the information of what are my friends up to. What's happening is the stuff that's going on in the world is affecting our whole emotional being to where the way that we feel about ourselves, the things that we believe about ourselves, the worldview that we possess about human dignity, personhood, those things are being warped and rewarped and rewarped over and over and over as, and this is just the social media realm, is pouring into our lives. And you may be there saying, well, I can handle it. I've been on social media since MySpace. I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious. I'm doing fine. I'm pretty happy. Uh, good for you, but you're probably lying to yourself if you're not honest about comparison, if you're not honest about how you view yourself in light of other people and the way that they present their lives. I mean, six, seven, eight years ago, there was kind of like the Instagram perfect thing that was going around where it was just people would present their life in a clean and tidy way. Their kids were always beautiful. It was always golden hour in their life somehow, just this perfect sunlight coming through every picture. And what started to take shape was this immense depression of people trying to figure out how does my life not look like that? How does my life feel so much different from that? And that, that starts to take shape where our reality looks different than YouTube. And it starts to, we start to live with this cognitive dissonance, this, this brokenness that's, why does my world not look and feel like everybody else's world? And how can God speak to you when you're constantly living in this tension of, am I doing it right? Am I doing life right? Because those people are and I'm not. And if we open ourselves up to that, we're closing ourselves off to the voice of the Lord saying, my son, my daughter, with whom I am well pleased, walk with me and talk with me. Be my child and I will be your God. And we lose out on what affection truly looks like and what it means to feel God has a different way for us, but we are cluttering up the lanes and disallowing ourselves from feeling the way that God has made us to feel, thinking the way that God has made us to think, believing the way that God has made us to believe. And this is just social media. There are many, many, many other ways that our emotional clutter is being affected, but I just wanted to highlight one. And the last area is spiritual clutter trying to live lives of dependence and devotion, stirring, scent, and we're trying to see what these things would look like. 
And at the same time, there are a myriad of messages that are flowing at us at all times from a lot of different perspectives. Okay, just think about for a moment uh, Israel. So Israel leaves Egypt. They're rescued by, you know, God brings Moses and takes them out of Egypt. They've seen the plagues. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. They see the Red Sea close up and smother Pharaoh's army, and they get through on the other side. They get hungry, and God provides manna. Every single day, God provides manna. They make their way to Mount Sinai. They see the presence of God land on Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning and noise. They're so terrified that they say, Moses, you go up on Mount Sinai, and we'll wait for you to bring the message back. He goes up there for 40 days. He's there for 40 days and comes down to find them in a pagan worship ceremony around a golden calf. See, we are so quick to look other directions for spiritual input, even when God has been present in our lives. We find ourselves chasing and chasing and chasing spiritual content, even if it's not God's word. We just want something. Paul writes this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 4. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Myths and endless genealogies that produce speculation. It's like our human nature to chase down the wild thought, the outlandish idea. And what's happening right now between podcasts and YouTube and TikTok is people can preach with no vetting. There's no publisher. There's no editor. There's no godly person saying this is a bad idea. They don't have a board of directors. They don't have pastoral oversight. They're just people gunslinging spiritual information all over the internet, and it sounds really, really good. And one of the reasons, and one of the reasons that Paul had to warn people about this is it's very close to the truth. It's not like they're teaching that some spaceship god landed on an island just off the coast of Oregon and is telling us all to put on yellow hats and sing at the top of our lungs. For most of us, it's pretty easy to spot and figure But you think, if you were to take off in a boat from California with your intent to get to Japan and just straight shot across the Pacific Ocean, if you were one degree off, like if you do the math, you end up basically in like Malaysia, like way off. Not even, oh, I meant to hit Tokyo and I got to Osaka. We're not talking about that. We're talking about I meant to hit Japan and I ended up in Malaysia when we are one degree off. And that's how it is with this false teaching. When it's off, even just a little bit, it takes us down a path that is spiritually destructive. And Paul challenged Timothy, you need to watch out for this. This is me saying there's spiritual clutter out there that's filling our minds. And we need to guard our minds and our hearts and our ears against that. I've already recommended this book before. I'll recommend it again called The Wisdom Pyramid that just talks about a way to build input sources that allows us to emphasize the most trustworthy input source that is the Word of God. And we build off of this. And then you go to the local church. 
We say the local church not because I am the best teacher in the world or have the most accurate information, but because I'm knowable. Our elder team is knowable. You can test our character. You can take me out for coffee and ask. Ask about what is going on in my life. How am I handling money? How am I handling lust? How am I handling uh, envy and a desire to be famous? And you can test my character and know me. And so the local church is testable. Not detestable, it's testable. <laughs> and then from there, you go to you know, books by trusted authors. A lot of times, if I quote somebody, I'll, I'll try and quote people that we know or have some relationship with. I love quoting Brett McCracken because Bert Alcorn has a good friend named John Marshall. John Marshall was a teacher at Eternity Bible College, and he planted a church in uh, Santa Ana called Southlands Santa Ana, and Brett McCracken is on eldership with John at Southlands Santa Ana. So when we read this book... It's not like some rando dude that we found on Amazon when we typed in wisdom and then we're like, that sounds good and order that book. But there's a sense of even one layer out of testable character or people that have proven themselves over time. And this is beautiful when we read old books from people who over the course of their life stayed faithful to follow Jesus to the end. There's something about that that you can look at and say they lived a faithful life. It's not like I'm putting all my eggs in this basket and then we're going to find out in two years that this guy's been stealing money for 25 years from every ministry that he's ever been a part of. And so we can find tested sources. And honestly, going to later layers of podcasts and internet stuff, that's like, that's like the top of the pyramid, not in a good way. That's the top of the pyramid, like the least amount of stuff that we should be consuming. And if we build this properly, we can actually have spiritual inputs that are helping us establish a firm foundation of belief and truth in our lives. There's much to say on this, but I need to close out with this. This is important for me to close out because I, we just talked about sin and the things which cling so closely and it could feel totally oppressive if you're not careful. But I want to say this, we're not operating from a posture of defeat. So getting rid of sin and the things which cling so closely, it's not like I'm drowning in a swamp and maybe, only maybe, if I can get the, rid of these things, then I'll be able to get my head above water. That's not the picture of the Bible. This is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and I'll close with this. Actually, Jeff, you guys can start coming up. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When we operate in this manner of life and being, pursuing God, getting rid of sin, getting rid of clutter, it's not if you can get rid of all this sin and clutter, then maybe God can save you. That would be a false gospel. It's he has done the work. He nailed your debt to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. We operate from a posture of victory. That sin has no claim on you. Those things that entangle do not define you. Jesus has claim on you and Jesus defines you. And now we can get to work removing these things as an act of worship, as an act of discipline, as an act of faithful obedience, but not so that we can be saved. That is done and finished. 
Praise Jesus. <laughs> James comes from a church where everybody hoots and hollers and hallelujahs, and uh, he's always like, where is it at with Anthem? Where's everybody coming from, man? Let's go. You say a gospel thing, you get a gospel cheer. Let's shout it out. All right, so we're going we're gonna to respond. We want to pray. We want to worship. We want to give. And we want to take communion together. This is an opportunity even in the midst of all of the stuff that could get in the way of you pursuing Jesus, we declare victory in Christ because of what he's done for us. That's what communion does. It reminds you of victory. It's what worship does. We sing because he is true and he has won for us our salvation. So we lift up the name of Jesus and we praise him from a different posture. So Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to exalt your name and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be known in us. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.